It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I want to start off today by talking about sleep. I mean, <sighs> sorry, excuse me. Um, it's a very interesting subject to me because I've always had trouble sleeping, sort of borderline insomniac. And this is really a piece about Netflix and The Hollywood Reporter, uh, leading off by saying that the CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, once said that the company's main competitor was sleep. But now Netflix is putting out a new series that explains how to help you sleep better. It's called The Headspace Guide to Sleep. Uh, this is all about science, best tips, best sleep you've ever had, dealing with insomnia, stress, your phones, sleeping pills, and on and on and on. Uh, it's rather ironic, says Hollywood Reporter, uh, from the media content company that introduced the world to the habit of binging full seasons of television shows. Back in 2017, Reed Hastings said, you get a show or movie you're really dying to watch and you end up staying up late at night, so we actually compete with sleep and we're winning. So maybe Netflix feels guilty about that and wants to help people be able to kind of turn it off or maybe it's just trying to get some more traffic. Um, I'm not somebody who's really tuned into The Bachelor. I know it's a hugely popular show. But yesterday on Good Morning America, Colton Underwood who was on The Bachelor back in 2019, publicly came out as gay, which is fine, great, glad he's talking about it. It kind of made me feel like, well, was he doing the show under less than honest pretenses? I don't know all the details. Um, but in looking at a story about this, um, Underwood received an outpouring of support for accepting his sexuality, but just as much criticism for his actions with the woman he chose at the end of the season. Her name was Cassie Randolph. Forgive me if you people who watch The Bachelor already know all this. Uh, she made it to the final three before breaking up with him and leaving of her own accord. But in the end, Underwood broke up with the remaining two women and asked Randolph to give him a second chance. They dated for more than a year, eventually split up. Uh, in September, Cassie Randolph was granted a restraining order against Underwood, accusing him of harassing her planting a tracking device under her car and going on obsessive walks near her parents' home. She feared for her safety. So I think that's a bigger issue than, you know, him discussing his sexuality. There you have it. So you've probably heard that Bernie Madoff died in jail at the age of 82. And look, I never, ever say, no matter how evil a human being somebody is, well, I'm glad they're dead. But let's just say this guy ruined a lot of people's lives. Apparently died of natural causes. I mean, the the pyramid scheme, the amount of financial fraud that he pulled off was just amazing. It hurt a lot of prominent people, famous people, obviously rich people, the New York Mets. Uh, and, and people are still trying to dig out from the Bernie Madoff scams. So uh, let's just say uh, he left a legacy uh, that cannot be sugarcoated in any way, shape or form. Hey, George W. Bush, have not heard a lot from him lately. Well, he's coming back. Uh, he's he's um, appearing with Nora O'Donnell on CBS Sunday Morning over the weekend. He's got a new book, Out of Many, One Portraits of America's Immigrants. So, you know, he became quite an accomplished portrait painter in his post-presidential retirement. So, obviously, he's going on TV to plug the book. What caught my eye is, and to remind you here, it was back in 2006 
that President Bush gave an Oval Office address on immigration, tried to come up with the Gang of Eight or Gang of Seven, whatever it was at that time, some kind of compromise on immigration, failed, as most presidents have, on the subject of immigration. He's telling uh, Nora O'Donnell that he's ready to re-enter the debate on immigration, including lobbying his own party on the issue. Nora says, still, nothing's been done. Bush, no, a lot of executive orders, but all that means is that Congress isn't doing its job. O'Donnell, is it one of the biggest disappointments of your presidency? Bush, yes, it really is. I campaigned on immigration reform. I made abundantly clear to voters this is something I intended to do. Which raises an interesting question. And I'm happy to see President Bush speak out. And, you know, he is somebody who basically, with a couple of exceptions, stayed quiet for all of Barack Obama's eight years as president. And I really respect that. Um... And then Obama kind of tried to do that with Trump, but, you know, got attacked a lot by Trump, eventually spoke out and, of course, campaigned against him in 2020. The question is, the Republican Party is so different now than in George Bush's second term. It was so it has been so completely remade by Donald J. Trump that even if he goes out, lobbies Republicans for immigration reform, goes on TV, you know, was very, very active. How much impact would President Bush have? It really is a Trump party now. And, and Trump made clear, remember, of course, he ran against Jeb Bush, but he constantly brought up and disparaged George W. Bush um, over the uh, war in Iraq in particular, uh, over all kinds of things. You know, not a fan of the Middle East interventions. Uh, and so it, it would just add an interesting voice to debate if Bush tries to mix it up with what now is Donald Trump's GOP. Um, and I don't know. I mean, clearly he would be much less influential now than he would have been after leaving office. It is just the Republican Party has moved to the right or, or moved to a more Trump-style populism on many issues. I mean, after all, it's George Bush who went into Afghanistan. We'll talk about that more in a second. And it's George Bush who... Uh, launched the attack on Iraq and toppled Saddam Hussein, both of which led to all kinds of unintended consequences of which Donald Trump and now Joe Biden were very critical. So there'd be all kinds of things he could engage. But I just think that this is Trump's party now. And it doesn't mean that Bush would have no influence, but clearly the world has moved on. And let's move on now to the Afghanistan debate because uh, more people have weighed in now. And I think... I mentioned yesterday on the podcast that in deciding to end U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan, um, that really Joe Biden was following through on a promise and a deal made by Donald Trump, who wanted out, who talked constantly about endless wars. And in his speech, Biden referred to Afghanistan as the forever war. And basically said, why are we still in there in 2021? So the Washington Post has an analysis saying that this is a turning point for the waning influence of foreign policy hawks in Washington. Take it from me, they still have a lot of influence. But clearly, they don't have the influence that they had, for example, you know, when they were all out there defending the invasion of Iraq during the Bush administration. So... What the Washington Post piece says is that Trump changed our politics in many ways, turned the GOP in a more populist direction, created a rift between Republicans and the business community, 
that is a lot more pronounced today. Um, and now when it comes to withdrawing from the Middle East, even when Trump announced that this was his plan, many Republicans pushed back. That is true. Foreign policy during Trump's four years as president was one of the few issues in which Republicans uh, spoke out against him. I mean, a lot of other stuff they just swallowed. They said nothing. Oh, I haven't seen that tweet. But when it came to Iraq, to Saudi Arabia, to Yemen, to Trump's withdrawal from Syria and the impact on, on American allies in the Kurdish part of uh, Syria. Trump often had more support among the isolationist wing of the Congressional Democratic Party than his own, says the Washington Post. But the practical impact of it all was to create a far less cohesive and potent conservative movement, he often referred to as the neocons, behind the hawkish foreign policy that had reigned supreme since 9-11. Uh, the Post goes on to say that by the late Bush years, Republicans clung to a more hawkish approach and then doubled down when Obama was the one pushing for an exit from the Middle East. Uh, now, it goes on to say, look, there are still obviously very hawkish people. Mitch McConnell put out a statement saying that what Biden is doing is a retreat in the face of an enemy. Lindsey Graham, as I mentioned yesterday, he also called it insane. Lindsey calling it dumber than dirt, devilishly dangerous, and warned it could trigger another 9-11. Okay, they are the hawks in the party. You would expect that. But the GOP is not united. As the piece points out, Republican Senators Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, and Mike Lee, all very conservative, offered varying degrees of praise for President Biden's move on Afghanistan. Now, Politico has what purports to be a behind-the-scenes look at how uh, Joe Biden... Um, overruled the generals. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because one of the things I talked about the other day when um, there was a piece actually in the Washington Post about um, the lack of leaks in the Biden White House and how this, you know, was a stark contrast to the constant internal feuding and palace intrigue of the Trump years where everybody was leaking on everybody else. I mean, it was just unbelievable. It was head spinning. And I couldn't believe that it continued up until the end. And, and, of course, it was sort of on steroids after the January 6th riot at the Capitol. But this piece in Politico, I said, okay, so finally the Biden administration has figured out that when you do authorized leaks, when the president makes a major decision, you want to give the reporter something like, you know, Joe Biden uh, looked uh, somebody in the eye and said, this will not stand. And, you know, in a way that helps your narrative. But then it turned out there really wasn't any of that. Uh, it really wasn't uh, quite as advertised. I'm not dissing political here. I'm just saying these are very hard details to get. But one thing that is clear is that the military, as the military did with Trump, as the military did with Bush, you know, as the military has done for 20 years now in Afghanistan, lobbied very strongly to keep American troops, at least some American troops, there. So General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, as well as the four-star commanders of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan, Central Command, Special Operations Command, they all were proponents of this strategy, said sources who spoke on condition of anonymity. In other words, they did not want to pull out. They did what military people do, which is they made the case for leaving American troops in place because there is a risk. It's a very risky move here. The Taliban take over that country. Look, the Biden national security people have concluded that um, there are other countries that pose a greater terrorist threat to the U.S. than does Afghanistan with a weakened al-Qaeda. But there's no guarantee of that. In any event, 
they've said that uh, Biden was able to do what no previous president has done, override the brass. Uh, so Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who obviously, you know, was uh, a major league general, uh, said during a visit to NATO that the process was inclusive. So he's not bitching about it, but he didn't really have, you know, he got overruled. Behind the scenes, Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan are, quote, truly running the Pentagon, according to two former officials familiar with the discussions. The Pentagon is not making these decisions, one of these people said. Well, look, first of all, uh, in this country, we have something called a tradition of civilian rule over the military. So even though Lloyd Austin, who may be a very good Pentagon chief, uh, is a, you know, had to get a special exemption because he had been a general within the last few years, uh, ultimately, you know, it's the president who gets to decide military policy. It's the president, it's the White House that often uh, rolls, not just other cabinet departments, but state and defense. And so Jake Sullivan, as National Security Advisor, um, has a lot to say about Pentagon policy. Uh, In granting uh, Blinken that authority, it seems that Joe Biden has more confidence in his Secretary of State than he does in his Secretary of Defense. But, you know, the deal is that Sullivan and Blinken have been part of the Biden inner circle for many, many years. So he knows them, he trusts them, he relies on them. He doesn't really have a history with General Austin. And Austin, to his credit is being a good soldier. He's saluting and saying, okay, I had a different approach, but the commander-in-chief has made the decision and I will carry it out, which is exactly what he should do. He doesn't have a choice. If he doesn't want to carry it out, he can resign. As Jim Mattis did, largely over Syria, or was pushed out after relations between him and President Trump had deteriorated. So once uh, the story was published, a spokesperson for the National Security Council, the White House National Security Council, issued the following statement. Politico did not reach out to the White House or the NSC for comment for this story, despite having four reporters on the byline. Ouch. Let me just pause there and say, that's always a mistake when you don't ask for comment because you subject yourself to, well, if they bothered to ask us, we would have told them the following. None of the four reporters. Okay. Had they done so, says the state, we would have said that this was a completely inaccurate and poorly informed storyline coming from former officials who were not even part of the policy process. The Biden administration ran on Afghanistan. President Biden and National Security Advisor Sullivan placed enormous importance on running an inclusive, rigorous, and thorough policy review of our options in Afghanistan, seeking the informed expertise of military, diplomatic, and humanitarian government experts at every step of the way. And then the president and commander-in-chief made the final decision. Well, the story doesn't say he didn't run an inclusive process. It just says that some people have more clout than others. And it explained how the military was overwritten, which, of course, is Biden's prerogative. So to some extent, this statement, while taking uh, the shots at Politico for not seeking comment, is denying things that were not reported by Politico. Um, Also in this piece, Biden came to the decision after lengthy... It says Biden came to this decision after lengthy consultations with his advisors. This is interesting, as well as calls to his predecessors including Barack Obama, who went on to put out a statement praising Biden's bold leadership, and the aforementioned George W. Bush. Biden called Bush to inform him of the decision, since he was, after all, the president that ordered troops into Afghanistan. 
And the reason I like that is Trump never did that. Trump never called Bush. He never called uh, Clinton. He never called Obama. He never called Carter. You know, there's, a, there's some value to doing that, particularly if you're an outsider to politics. And it also there's a certain sort of professional courtesy in letting former presidents know of your decision, particularly if they were part of that very issue when they were in the White House. Uh, here, predictably, David Petraeus, former CIA chief. He was, was also, of course, the commander of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. Uh, says the U.S. withdrawal means that the Taliban will likely overrun the country and allow terrorist groups such as al-Qaeda and ISIS to reconstitute. Look, Petraeus may be right. He's entitled to his opinion. The commander-in-chief has reached a different opinion. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, let's go on now to uh, COVID. I've been spending a lot of time on this. The whole fiasco, I don't know if there's anything else I can call it, this whole potential overreaction with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is still a very, very big story. So when President Biden came out and said, don't worry, America, I've got 600 million doses, that missed the point. Uh, and when uh, Anthony Fauci came out and uh, CDC officials came out and said, this is not a setback at all for our strategy. Every American who wants a vaccine will get one. They really were either deliberately ignoring or being kind of tone deaf to the real damage being done by what happened with J&J. So here's the New York Times saying, after a day that many hope would add clarity uh, on the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine, The picture yesterday is as muddy as ever in the United States. This pause that health officials put in place to study the use of the vaccine may now stay in place seven to 10 days. It's a decision with potentially painful consequences that could ripple worldwide. Well, that's basically what I was saying on the podcast, basically what I said in the column that I wrote yesterday. Today's column is about Afghanistan. You're always welcome to read it, or I can go into a little bit more depth in column form. Um, after considering whether to reinstate the vaccine, a panel of experts to the CDC uh, determined yesterday it needs more time to assess a possible link to a rare but serious blood clotting disorder. Now, it talks about the global implications here in South Africa. Health officials have stopped giving the J&J shot two months after dropping another vaccine from AstraZeneca. The European Union said it won't make any more purchases of the J&J vaccine or of AstraZeneca. So that means uh, fewer doses available around the world. It says there could be a perception taking hold that rich countries are dumping second-rate shots on poorer nations. You know, we've got Moderna, we've got Pfizer. Those are stellar. No serious side effects by and large reported. And these other two, you know, have had serious side effects reported. So here is a doctor uh, and behavioral scientist in Malawi who says... People, especially those who were vaccinated, felt like they'd been tricked in a way. They were asking, how do we get rid of the vaccine in our body? We fought so hard with vaccine messaging, but what happened this past week has brought us back to square zero. And this is the impact of this problem. This is what I've been trying to say. Look, I'm not a scientist, I'm not an expert on this, but I do know something about public opinion and messaging. Also, uh, in, even in developed countries, the J&J vaccine was, was, was really liked by a lot of people because, one, you could get just one shot, and secondly, it was easier to store. You didn't need these sub-zero temperatures and so forth. So meanwhile, today, Fauci, Rochelle Walensky, the CDC chief, David Kessler, 
FDA uh, set to testify on Capitol Hill uh, about the coronavirus response, and they're going to have to answer a lot of questions. I have to come back to the math here. Seven million people got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Six were reported at the time of this pause. Remember, it wasn't ordered by CDC, but it was urged and adopted by either all states or most states. Six cases of rare and severe blood clots in the brain with women ages 18 to 48, one of whom died. Now, new information, JOJ revealing, there were two more people, one woman and one man, who have said to have developed these severe blood clots. But then you do the math. Eight, it's now eight cases out of seven million. So almost a one in a million chance of getting this versus, as somebody pointed out, if you're driving to the vaccination place in your car, you probably have a better chance of getting into a fatal accident than one in a million. Um, So this is a mess. And even if a week from now they come out and say, oh, you know what, Uh, we think it's fine to use J&J, it's it's, uh, phenomenally low. The people who are the vaccine skeptics, uh, you think they're going to be convinced? Which brings me to this Monmouth University poll that just came out. Now that the vaccines are more widely available, I continue to tell you there are a lot of people having trouble getting appointments. You know, yes, they're all eligible. There's the difference between eligible and being able to get it, although I did see a story out in New York saying at the big Javits Center, the big convention center in Manhattan, there are appointments all day long and there aren't many takers. There are a few dozen people coming in a day, but there are like a thousand appointments. So at least in the heart of New York City, there are either enough people have already got it or a lot of people don't want to get it. That's not the case in a lot of other places, including in the Washington area. Okay, this poll by Monmouth says 45% of Republicans said they do not plan to get vaccinated, similar to a previous survey by Quinnipiac. Among Democrats, two-thirds say they've already gotten at least one vaccine dose, according to this poll. But among Republicans, only 36% say they have gotten at least one shot. So, you know, I, I fail to understand. I know a lot of people will blame Trump. Trump says get the vaccine. He hasn't exactly mounted a forcible campaign, but he said it on a couple of occasions. Why Republicans don't take the virus seriously enough, it's killed over 550,000 Americans, to go get this vaccine? What is it? I mean, is it the conspiracy theories? Is it a, a fear of adverse effects? Is it just sort of political tribalism? I don't understand it. And I think, look, every individual can make his or her own decision what's best for them and their family. I get that. I'm not here to tell you what to do. But it is hurting other people because if the rest of the country doesn't get to 70, 75 percent, you know, pick your magic number, then we don't reach herd immunity, which means the virus continues to spread. Obviously, it'll be at a lesser level once more and more and more people get vaccinated. Also from this poll, 62 percent give positive marks to President Biden and to their own state's governor for the handling of the pandemic. But they don't have as much faith in their fellow Americans. Just 43% said the general public had done a good job in dealing with the outbreak. Democrats in particular were disappointed in their fellow citizens. Just one out of three said the public had handled it well. All right. Uh, Atlantic has a big piece about how Trump is fading from public view and from media. Uh, there's, you know, for certainly in terms of Google search interest. Well, look, he's not on Twitter. He's not on Facebook. He's not on Instagram. Uh, so he's getting less attention there. Um, 
Now, so the, so the Atlantic piece says it's not just Twitter. While Trump clearly misses the feeding of tweeting and getting immediate feedback, he's taking to email statements to reporters, sometimes several in a day, tell me about it, I get them every day, in the hopes that they'll tweet them, but it's not the same. For one thing, freed from the constraints of 280 characters, he tends to ramble, says Atlantic. I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. But someone of Trump's fame doesn't need a Twitter account. As an insurgent presidential candidate in 2015, Trump found the account provided a useful way to drive the conversation. But, you know, you can have press conferences, you can do interviews, Oval Office addresses. Uh, This piece makes an interesting point. Trump could probably get more attention if he gave an interview to a more adversarial interviewer. Sit down with Jake Tapper or Chris Wallace or Leslie Stahl. That would produce some fireworks. Um, But wasn't that long ago that just calling into Fox and Friends was plenty newsmaking on its own. Uh, First, the press has finally started to learn, in the opinion of The Atlantic's David Graham, its lesson about covering his emptiest, most trolly outrage bait. Okay, Second, Trump's ability to control the news depended in part on ever greater provocations. Once you've tried to overturn a presidential election, you don't have a lot of room to escalate. Fair observation. But then, toward the end of the piece, he gets to the stuff that I would point out. Uh, Trump remains in control of the Republican Party. A sizable minority of the population, that population still backs him. He tops polls of GOP voters for 2024 presidential candidates, leading Republicans like Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise make pilgrimages to Mar-a-Lago to shore up their standing. And the campaign committee for Senate Republicans just invented a prize to give to Trump. Even figures such as Mitch McConnell and Nikki Haley, who harshly criticized Trump over the coup, if you want to call it a coup, the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, have said they would back him if he were the 2024 negative uh, nominee. But what Trump retains is negative power, the power to torpedo a Republican who won't stay in lockstep with him. And that's why I'm not buying the thesis of this piece. Look, does Donald Trump have far, far less influence over the media than when he was actually president of the United States? Of course, especially with the ban on social media. But has there ever been, I mean, going back to even Teddy Roosevelt and others, has there ever been a former president of the United States who had as much clout with his own party and who got as much coverage, particularly on cable news, but also in newspapers, than Donald Trump? I don't think so. I can't think of one. Absolutely not. You know, when Bill Clinton left office, a lot of people said, because Clinton had dominated the news and had been kind of a soap opera with the sex scandals as well as all the other Clintonian things that he did, uh, he was going to get so much coverage it would overshadow George W. Bush. I remember Michael Wolff saying that. And I said that was complete and total BS. And, of course, it did turn out to be BS. I mean, did he get some coverage as a colorful ex-president? Yeah. Did he get some more coverage when his wife tried, ran for president? Yeah. Anyway, um, meanwhile, speaking of Trump and statements, Trump continued his attacks on Republicans last night, going after Lisa Murkowski and Liz Cheney. Great news for the Republican Party. Lisa Murkowski says she's still weighing whether she'll run again for Senate in Alaska. In other words, there's a chance she won't one. Wouldn't that be great? And then he went after crazy Liz Cheney, congresswoman, daughter of the former vice president. The only way she can win, he's saying in Wyoming, is if too many candidates run against her, splitting the vote. Okay, so he's still at it. Finally, Washington Post has a uh, takes a bite at this story. What's the deal with Major Biden? President Biden's three-year-old shepherd has been the source of two biting incidents in less than a month. First, nipping a Secret Service member's hand, then biting another staff member. Um, 
Associated Press reported that one of the president's two German shepherds, maybe it was 12-year-old champ, but let's not kid ourselves, left a pile of poop in the hallway outside the diplomatic reception room. Is Major a good boy? The answer holds uh, no bearing on the future of our republic, but we in the style section decided it would be worth gnawing on briefly before sniffing our way to something more pressing. So this is all very uh, done very tongue-in-cheek. To begin with, we tried asking Mark Tobin, the president's dog trainer. He's a former police officer and canine coordinator in Delaware. He trained both Biden dogs, uh, but he told the Post he had signed an agreement prohibiting him from talking to the media. He confirmed he's still working with the Biden dogs, but beyond that, I can't comment. They're muzzling him like you would do to a German shepherd. They're muzzling the dog trainer. Wow. Talk about message control. Okay. Uh, Post goes on, Major is a German Shepherd. Could this be a German Shepherd thing? Absolutely not, says the German Shepherd Dog Club of America, whose existence I've previously been unaware. All right, finally we get some history here. And this is, I just wanted to get this in before we go. Major's not the only presidential dog to embarrass its owners. Sonny, one of Obama's two Portuguese water hounds, knocked over a two-year-old at a holiday party. That didn't get a lot of press. Child wasn't injured. Barney, George W. Scottish Terrier, bit a Reuters reporter so hard that he bled and needed a tetanus shot. Quote, Barney was a real jerk, said the president's donor, Jenna Bush Hager. None of those were as bad as Teddy Roosevelt's dog Pete, a prolific biter who chased a South American diplomat up a tree and incidentally chewed two or three policemen who went to the aid of the distinguished foreigner, according to a 1907 Report and reportedly tore the pants over the French, off the French ambassador. So it could be worse for the Biden dogs. Hey, thanks all for listening. Get your vaccine if you haven't already. Stay safe. You can subscribe at Apple iTunes, go on Google Podcasts, on your Amazon device. I've had a lot of fun today. Hope you enjoyed it. See you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.